Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the When Diplomacy Fell special on the 30 Years' War. Episode 25.45, Talk. Kind of spur of the moment, folks, but I recently sat down with Sean and we ran through a few of the issues that you may or may not want to hear covered in some more detail on the Thirty Years' War. The episode, as you can see, is a bit long. I didn't intend it to be this long, but hopefully you'll be able to gain some good out of it. That's my intention anyway. So please, put your feet up and relax as you listen to two very good friends talk about a really, really interesting period in history. Back on the podcast, and my guest as always is Sean. Say hello, Sean. Hello. It has been so, so long since we've done one of these, um, but I'm really excited because last time for the World War One special, we made the mistake, well, debatable mistake, of saving the talk episode to the very end, which was why it was two hours long, and some people didn't really have the attention span to stick with it. So. Or the patience for it. Yeah. Um, so I think we should start. We have a good bit of stuff to get through. Mm. Um, a lot of it's covering... The last episode I just did recently, and the episode before that in October, so it kind of condenses the most important parts of it before. So if you have missed out on those, this is where you can come and just hear some of the little parts. Yeah, just to, and also just to little pick you up to speed. Exactly, and little anecdotes as well to kind of fill in the Plus, gaps. You love us, come on, yeah. admit it. You just enjoy hearing us have banter. <laughs> okay, so be fit. It's been so long since I've actually yes, done be fit. Just. What was the B for? Uh, Blog. Yeah. Remember to go to the blog. Go there to look at podcast notes, some of the photos. Mm -hmm. There's a donate button Mm -hmm. you can can put in there. Yep. I put put bibliographies of the episode. Oh, that's true. So if you want to know what the sources I use are, then that's a good place to get, like, official. In case you think I'm pronouncing it wrong, which, in fact, I was doing for a while. (laughs) You know that C, there was that C.W. Wedgwood guy who I thought existed and it turns out his name is C.V. Wedgwood and actually it's a girl so I was getting that wrong for the entire of 25.3 Wow! but I had to give that book back to the library anyway so it didn't matter in the end so that's why you don't hear any more about C.W. Wedgwood because that person doesn't exist but yeah so wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie is the name of the blog mm-hmm. and it's been properly used for like a year or so I'd recommend checking it out E is for email, where you can send Zach an email, which is probably the most direct route, and also the one that'll get you, like, 
it's it means a lot more when it comes as an email because yes. it means you're going out of your way yes. to really write something. Exactly. We've discussed this. The yeah. the idea of getting an email is kind of more like, ooh, I got an email. Rather it's than like the good old days where if we had a house address, you'd write us a letter. And yeah. That would make us feel super special. That would like to take a tremendous amount of effort. Yeah. yeah. But um, so. email is like the next step up from that. But yeah, <laughs> better than better than fa- like more thoughtful than Facebook messaging. But still, but Facebook even then. Good. Facebook is good. Yeah. F is for... F is for Facebook. Facebook. Yes. Yeah, so the Facebook page, When Diplomacy Fails, yeah. and as well, I would recommend looking at the History, History Podcasts group mm-hmm. if you want to find other podcasts like When Diplomacy Fails and talk directly to the people who are responsible for them. Also, they, they are doing some cool events um, for inter-podcast Exactly, yes. Stuff, so History Podcasts keep an eye Collage. On that as well. Yeah, History Podcasts Collage. Very important. Very cool stuff. Very exciting, really, because we're really, all us podcasters are really coming together. So, yeah, uh, big it, props. It, yeah, it could start becoming an industry. Yeah, now. yeah, exactly. Uh, so, big props to Benjamin Ashwell, in particular, is pretty much a pioneer of all that. He does the Talking History uh, podcast on the Italian unification. Mm. Very, very good. Actually, I, I recently did an introduction for him, and his introduction I just used the other day. So, oh, sweet. Yeah, sweet. so podcasters helping podcasters. It's all good. So I, then, is for iTunes, and what can you do on iTunes, well, John? you can rate, subscribe, and download the podcast. Most be- it's, it's the biggest podcatcher. Mm. Which, what's called a podcatcher is iTunes. Exactly, and if you stick reviews and rate it up there... It'll hit a bigger audience. Exactly. Um, mo- most people, I would imagine, I know there's Android apps for podcasting, but most people would use their iPods and mm. iPhones and stuff for podcasts. At least I use my, pretty much the only thing on my iPod is podcasts and audiobooks. So. Yeah. yeah. So what I'd like you to do, if you would be so kind, you've already done it very well, very good job so far, is to leave me a review um, on the podcast part for iTunes store subscribe to the podcast feeds so that it comes directly to you every time it's released because my schedule is pretty erratic yeah, so it will be a good idea to do that and then you're not checking in every couple of weeks going where the hell is this yeah. damn thing he said he put out two weeks ago yeah so it'd be a good idea to uh, good idea to do those three things that'll really help you along okay so T, T is for tell a friend not even tell a friend. Tell a person. Tell a person. Tell a it, thing. It started off as tell a friend, then it was yeah. tell somebody, and now it's tell anybody, and now it's just tell a thing. As our desperation level has grown <laughs> for more listeners, we've just broken down more and more barriers now. Yeah. You don't yeah, even have to tell, like, animate objects. They can just... Be, be in existence. Yeah. And if they're there, they're there. Yeah. Like, it could be a figment of your imagination. You could dream that you've told someone, and that would help us. I really don't think that would, <laughs> that would help us put him. Yeah, okay. So that is B fit. B is for blog, E is for email, F is for Facebook, I is for iTunes, T is for tell, anyone, anything, anything you feel like. <laughs> so uh, if you've done parts of B fit or all of it, then thank you very much. Yes, um, I also really like to thank you guys for the donations as well. And in fact, I'm very happy to say that there's been so many of them that I don't have, like, I'm not able to remember everyone's names. Which, if I was a good person, I would really take down their names and then read them out on this. But you don't do it for gratification. You do it so that I'm getting the money and you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. From oh, that. maybe that is gratification. You don't do it for praise. Yeah. You, you don't, don't do, do it for it. praise. Yeah. Exactly. Though it is nice when you get a mention. Yeah. yeah. Too bad. No, no <laughs> mention for you. Okay, so that's BeFit. Now, a, a word of warning. We're about to cover some housekeeping. So little anecdotal details about what went on in the world of when diplomacy fails and Zach Twomley in general and a bit of Shona Regan I suppose uh, a little bit uh, yeah a little bit so if you don't want to hear about any of that then fast forward about five minutes and you'll get into the actual content of the episode just a word of warning I feel 
you're entitled to have. So, without any further ado, let's cover some of the housekeeping. Um, I'd mainly like to address the gigantic gap that was left. Like, the podcast I did the other day, two or three days ago or something, that was the first podcast I did since the 15th of October. I think that's probably the longest gap I've Mm. ever had. For a number of reasons, that gap was kind of inevitable. Well, the main one was college. Probably the most stressful semester I've ever had. I went from having, like, five assignments to do, and then I had that guest lecture, which went really well. And there's pictures of that up. So it did actually happen. I'm not making it up. Um, But then I went from that to... uh, exams so all very stressful and i should know i didn't get to see him for like maybe four or five times we hung out in the entire three months of that semester yeah so so it's really been time consuming it has it wasn't just the podcast that suffered it was my social life in general yes (laughs) so i'm very glad that it's over and i hope that now it'll be a lot more easy to handle because i'll be prepared for it this time more Mm -hmm. i think and i'll certainly be getting a good few more episodes out of the way such as this one before college really heats up again so that's good but yeah what i was going to say um with that was i was planning on doing a state of the podcast address before i went back to actual podcasting to explain all this but i figured hey might as well just do it in this because it's easier and it means there won't be an extra episode in the feed clogging it up and making my ocd-ness upset because it'll be like special 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 state of the podcast address special special you know that kind of thing yeah that yeah. would drive you mad. that would really drive me mad <laughs> so i there's no way that that would ever going to happen so i'm glad i did it this way mm. but a few other announcements i was going to make in the state of the podcast address um things such as uh the new microphone that i got for christmas uh the blue yeti um which promised so much but in the end turned out that I had a defective mic. Now, this is the first time anything bad has ever happened to me through Amazon, and I don't want a badmouth blue because I'm using a blue product right at this moment called Blue Snowball, which is absolutely fantastic and was very, very, very reasonably priced. Uh, it was just unfortunate that I got a, I got a defective mic because I had a lot of plans that were going to go along with that new mic, such as a competition involving this Blue Snowball where... One of my listeners was going to get a blue snowball for winning a competition, and I was going to keep my blue yeti. But of course, that can't happen now because blue yeti's gone back to wherever he came from, and I have to stick with the blue snowball now. So and we do love the snowball; it's been a faithful. It really has, uh, yeah. yeah. Over eighteen, over eighteen months of use, and not a single problem. Mm. Really, really good quality stuff. But uh, yeah, it was just unfortunate. I emailed them, but then I decided I'd just get a refund so that. I could have the money because I'm quite poor at the moment. Buy it, maybe buy a blue Yeti later on sometime when I feel like I really, really need it or when this blue snowball breaks. But I'd just like you guys to know that I was thinking of you. Um, and I did want to give you a present, mainly to say thank you for sticking with me and for your patience. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that. But it doesn't mean that in the future that's not going to happen. Yeah, it's still on the cards. It's just not on the cards at the moment. Exactly. There's another thing as well. We mentioned there a little while ago the collaboration between the history podcasters now Mm. that's really going to start heating up you may notice that the uh, history podcasters are doing more things together if you're part of the history podcasters feed like you just subscribe to that like you would any other podcast and we release episodes definitely less frequently than a regular episode would be released from a regular podcaster because it's hard to coordinate everyone obviously Mm. but every now and then we release episodes where we all collaborate on a specific topic and the most recent one was Unsung Heroes, where we all did a part 
about nine minutes long on a hero throughout history who isn't that well known. I picked Eugene of Savoy, so give it a listen if you want. I think it was released in two parts, and his search for history podcasters in iTunes or hmm. online, and you should be able to find it, no problem. If not, then let me know. Also ask on the History Podcasts page, the group in Facebook, and you can find it there as well. But that was just another announcement I wanted to make in the state of the podcast address. Another one, another thing I really wanted to talk about was... Um, the music that I use in the podcast, a lot of people have asked me where exactly it came from and who's responsible for it. Because some people, because they're annoyed at me putting it in, other people because they're just curious. You may or may not like it, but um, I really do like it and I enjoy it. And I think it's good for an atmospheric kind of edge. So many people are doing so many good things with audio that I felt it was good to make the kind of Thirty Years War special stand out. I think it's hard to go straight from well, it is for me anyway. Just living in everyday life and then tuning into a podcast and then being able to pay attention to it. I feel like the the music kind of settles you into it a bit. I don't know if that's just me. But anyway, so where do I get the music from and who who is it by? Well, most of the music I get is by this guy called uh, Giovanni Palestrina. And Palestrina was a composer and he composed for Philip II of Spain as well. And he was sponsored by most of the major courts of Europe at the time. So mainly late 16th century kind of kind of era. So his music would still have been listened to at this stage. So that's kind of why I use it, because you can almost imagine people in the courts of Europe and stuff listening to it. And they would have hired choirs and stuff to play it. Orchestras. Exactly, orchestras. Well, orchestras are mainly instruments, aren't they? Well, are they choirs of voices? Yeah, they're voices, oh. yeah. It's like like kind of like chanting, like kind of like holy oh, music kind okay. of stuff. But yeah, okay. it's really good. But um, I recently downloaded a, an album of it from iTunes. Now it's quite it's quite old. I'm sure there are copyright. There's co- it's quite old. <laughs> yeah. I don't There's know why I specified that. Sixteen hundred. Um, yeah, it is old. Like I mean, it's not recorded from back then. Obviously, they have <laughs> choirs doing it now more yeah, in modern yeah. ways. Um, but actually, a lot of the files are from Civilization Four, which is they use it in the medieval era. Now I probably shouldn't be specifying this, but it's not like I'm selling it to you. So. I don't think that much of a problem, so I think I'm allowed to tell you. But anywho, so if you would like to have some of the music, I can sort something out for you where I'll put it up on a Dropbox account or something and you can download it from there. But it, it is good. If you if you enjoy listening to it, I personally find it very relaxing. If I'm on the bus or something and I want to read, then I use I, I would listen to that yeah. or any other soundtracks I have if that I just don't sense. want to listen to music yet. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing. That's, that's where I get it from. Mainly, I, I either buy it or I get it from... Civilization Four soundtrack, yeah, <laughs> maybe illegal, but oh well, it's all good. <laughs> okay, well that's that's the extent of our housekeeping, I think. Yeah, but yeah, so we're gonna launch into the actual content Woo-hoo! of the episode now. So thanks for sitting through all that, and now yeah. we're in, like, I hope I hope that sheds some light on what's what's going on in my brain. Uh, and so, so, Sean, what do you know about Frederick V of the Palatine? He had probably the worst state to run. Like it's just a little geographically. Geographically, it's just a little bunch of of castles and grey dots towns. on the yeah. map. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. It's not a, a good looking province. Like, no, if it's you not. were if you were to be given a province or uh, whatever they're called an electoral county. Mm. You look at it and you're like, oh yeah, look at that Bohemia. Look at how much land it has, and it encapsulates mm. so much. And and uh, Bavaria, oh, look at that. Oh, it's just the, you know, mm-hmm. Brandenburg. Oh, look at that. It's, it's every time you look at those beautiful 
you know, unified states. states. They look like regular normal states. And then you have the Palatine, and you're just you know little yeah. bits in Saxony, little mm. bits in Flanders, little bits in Luxembourg. Little, you know, it's just it's all it's awful, and, horrible. Yeah. And it's it's vaguely divided into north and south. Yeah, and you're just like you know they'd have to have open borders with everyone. And mm. I say that as a civilization reference. They would have to because there's no way they could travel between the principalit. No, the Palatine state within it. So mm-hmm. it's just sure. Yeah. So Frederick, he's got a raw deal. Yeah. And... You may remember me um, in twenty-five point three, basically eventually caving in and persuading myself that I needed to do a map, like a mind map of the Holy Roman Empire, um, and saying I wasn't going to, and then eventually giving in and saying, okay, I will. Mainly because, like the Palatine, there's also other states like it which are just so hard to describe. You can't really do them justice unless you actually see it like, on a map of Europe, mm. of the Holy Roman Empire, and be like, okay, that's where that is. And even then, you're like, who came up with yeah, this? Yeah, it's it's mostly due to inheritance and succession. Mm. Like, yeah. it's very hard to explain how this guy inherited that, and it's mainly due to marriage. Um, but, yeah, it's very frustrating when you're trying to explain the Upper Palatine, the Lower Palatine, even to see it described in history books. It's hard to picture in your head. If you like me, you like to think of where this guy was going from, where he was going from. It's easy enough when you describe from, like, Saxony or from Bavaria because they're unified and there's no big giant gaps in between each part. But the Palatine was tricky for me because it's hard to just imagine all these parts together and existing cohesively when they're so far apart yeah, and so yeah. spread. Yeah. So, with with the uh, with the deal with Bohemia now, what what how much do you know about Bohemia, Sean? Uh, it's a song. Apart, <laughs> apart from being a song, a, a very well known song, um, which I actually used for the subtitle on one of the songs. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I felt so smug when I did that. Um, but yeah, so Bohemia it was a very important part of the Holy Roman Empire. It had probably the best land that the Holy Roman Empire had. The people who lived there were mostly wealthy, much like Bavaria, who we'll talk about in a little while. Um, the people there were mostly wealthy. The land was really good, mm. and the only thing about it was it was religiously divided, but that didn't necessarily matter because the land itself had kind of been always pledged, not as a de facto inherited principality of the Habsburgs, but it pretty much always fell to them that yeah. they were going to get it. Yeah. Like, there wasn't any law that said, okay, in order to be... But Holy they Roman were Emperor, elected. They were yes, elected. you were always elected as a king of B- Bohemia, but you see, the thing was, it always just seemed to go that... To the Hasburgs, Yeah. So. <laughs> Much like the institution of emperor itself. Now, who exactly is on the voting team? Is that just a council? Nobles that have inherited those titles? What you have in pretty much every single German state... Um, and now Bohemia is like a Czech state, but still, even there as well, you have these things called estates. Estates are basically regional assemblies mm-hmm. where people who own a significant amount of land, although depending on the size of the place that they're in, like the amount of land, the land requirements would differ. You would have to own a certain amount of land, a certain amount of wealth, etc., to be able to sit in these regional assemblies. And you would essentially debate and put things up to the person in charge, who in this case would be a Habsburg representative mm-hmm. and would then be the king of Bohemia. Now, initially, the King of Bohemia had a lot of powers, but those powers became gradually more reduced at the start of the 17th century. And then you had the Letter of Majesty, of course, which we covered at the start of 25.3. So 
the powers of the Bohemian kings were reduced and they had to answer more and more. It was more and more like a constitutional monarchy, except it was elected, so it was even more kind of subject to the whims of the people. So it's it's not it's kind of becoming a thorn in the side of the Habsburgs, but they certainly still need it desperately. Mm. And this explains why when Frederick assumes the crown of Bohemia after being elected there in the first place, this explains why it's such a big deal. Um, but that's only one part of why it's a big deal. I mean, Bohemia obviously is important geographically as well. Mm. It gives you lots of money, which we said, and its land is very, its, its land is very productive and stuff as well, and the people live quite well. But another reason why Bohemia is so important is because if you have the crown of Bohemia, you then get a vote in the electoral college, and then you you get to have a say in who the next emperor right. is going yeah. to be. And as long as that keeps falling to the Habsburgs. It's always going to be a Catholic vote. Yeah. Exactly. So, if the person who is king of Bohemia is not a Catholic, and is not a Habsburg, then the balance of three to four in favour of the Catholics in the electoral college, which always ensures that at, if not a Habsburg, then at least a Catholic mm. individual becomes emperor, that becomes upset once Frederick assumes mm. this and then you have a 4-3 to three in favour of the Protestants which the Habsburgs cannot allow and the mm. Spanish cannot allow because it could push the Habsburgs out of their position of power now I, I want to say something stupid but it, it's just a thought no go ahead could they make an 8th state and then balance that that way it's, yeah well I was wondering that as well but you see the problem with that was the status of the 7 electorates had been established in perpetuity, supposedly, by this thing called the Golden Bull. I think it was 1356. I don't know the exact was date. Was that before the religious splinters? Yes, that was before okay. the Reformation. So, so this was before... They didn't even realise that... No, was, yeah, not okay. at all. They didn't realise, but they knew that in order for it to be fair, because otherwise you could have a tie. Like, yeah. you can't have a and tie... Then, yeah, then you'd have a civil war. So. Yeah, like, you can't have a tie in voting if, if there's seven electors, because there has to be one would favour more of the other. That's probably why they never brought an eighth elector in. It sounds like a simple solution, or even another one. Keep on bringing electors in, but like they, they were very proud of... The Germans at this stage, they were very fond of their constitution, which mm. had been set down in the Golden Bull. And a lot of what both Ferdinand and Frederick do, they do because they believe they're upholding the constitution. Now, they both had religious motives as well. Yeah, Frederick believed he was protecting Protestants, while... Uh, Ferdinand believed he had to advance the cause of the Catholics who he believed was under threat like both believed they were acting defensively in religious terms but they also believed they were acting in the interests of the constitution yeah now exactly yeah now there was a lot of ideological uh, debates going on between the representatives of both sides because both believed that like Ferdinand believed that Frederick had upset the peace of the empire and had stolen the crown and, of Bohemia. Yeah, and, and it explains why all of the other Protestant states are saying just make peace. Exactly. Make peace. Yeah. Don't don't start a war. It was seen as such a like the the other Protestant states they wouldn't necessarily have said okay there's no danger to Protestants whatsoever Frederick what what's wrong with you but they would have thought that assuming the crown of Bohemia knowing full well how important Bohemia was to the Habsburgs, was a very drastic step in a very strong direction to take for someone like Frederick, who doesn't necessarily have the resources to back it up himself. He's just got the... the uh, What was it? The Palatine, yeah. The Palatine. And the Palatine is rubbish. (laughs) I say it's rubbish, it's probably fine, but it's just, you don't have the sort of resources that that Bohemia would be able to pull out by itself. Yeah. Why did the Bohemians elect 
Well, that's the thing. You know, out of all of the Protestant mm. leaders they could have re- elected to rule them, they picked the one with the most rubbish <laughs> state in the first place. I was I was wondering that as well. And interestingly, the Bohemians elected Frederick for the same reason that Frederick took the Bohemian crown. He thought that because of his familial ties to Denmark and England right. and the Netherlands, that he was guaranteed Protestant support. And if such a religious war did emerge that those allies were going to help him. Now, the Bohemians right. also... They, the were Bohemians, aware of his family Yes, ties, of course. Yeah. That was one of the main things that made him so appealing. Like, he was Calvinist as well, yeah. and the Bohemians would have been Protestant. The religious makeup of Bohemia is hugely diverse. Yeah. But the point is that both the Bohemians and Frederick expected help to come in large numbers. Yeah. Um, Christian of Anhalt, who was Frederick's main advisor, basically believed in this idea that once the blows started to fall, all of Frederick's, like, essentially Relatives, family members, yeah. yeah, were going to line up and help him. But this all seems to fall apart because... When it actually comes to... Yeah, exactly. Blows, so yeah. Frederick is left out in the cold because the things that he expected never materialised. And even on a smaller scale, in Bohemia itself... Now, Bohemia had this deal going with the immediate provinces around it where they allied themselves with the Moravian estates and the Silesian estates and the Lusatian estates. Now, those provinces are are a lot smaller than Bohemia, but they're kind of all kind of joined together. Mm. But the thing with those was they had all pledged loyalty to Frederick. They had all promised him resources. But when push came to shove, they proved just unwilling to provide what was necessary for Frederick to be able to fight back. Now, you could argue no matter what they did, it wouldn't be enough to fight the Catholic League and the Spanish eventually if the Catholic League got overwhelmed. But still... I said that it, it one of the sources, I think it was um, Brennan Purcell in his book, The Winter King, he said that it demonstrated the political immaturity of the estates that no matter what they said, it went, at the very end of the day, they weren't willing to sacrifice the necessary, either the men or the resources, like the money and the materials, in order to fight the war successfully. They thought that they could avoid the conflict. They thought they could have their privileges and have their, their rights that they, basically the purpose that they voted Frederick for, but they also thought at the same time they could avoid the worst part of the fighting. Yeah, and avoid the responsibilities of protecting your king. Yeah, as well. Yeah, it seems really naive when we look at it now, but they believed that they could somehow avoid the war. Like, lots of parts, when when Frederick went on what's called his royal progress, when he eventually, essentially, he he went around the country saying, I'm your king now, give me money, and, like, like, be proud of us, we are like, the bohemian crown is free once again kind of thing. He had to use a lot of money for this to prove to the people he was visiting that he meant business. Everyone who said that they were going to give him money, he generally got a favourable reception. But because the people that he visited didn't feel directly under threat, they didn't feel like they needed to directly support him. They promised him things, sure. Yeah, in hindsight, it seems a bit foolish, but to them, the war just seemed too far away. Yeah. Because the the empire seemed so determined for peace that mm. that, that that sort of thing and there was happen. there was a lot of moves towards peace from yeah. everyone really. Yeah. Frederick argued that he didn't want war; that the only person who wanted war was Ferdinand, because Ferdinand was the one aggressively pursuing exactly yeah Bohemians. Yeah. But Ferdinand argued the same thing, and he yeah. said that well, you taking that has given yeah. You know, what do you expect aggressive. me to do? Yeah, what do you expect me to do? I have to fight for the crown of Bohemia because Bohemia is so important to the religious makeup. Like we could have sat down and had a chat about it, Frederick, but you acted too far, too fast. Yeah, and I think it's both both sides. Both sides they do yeah, hold water. They, yeah. yeah, because. Then Ferdinand goes on and starts making, uh, you know, ties with uh, Maximilian and yeah. 
and starts making promises without consulting anyone as well. Exactly. So, you know, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So both both sides just they, they uh, acted in ignorance and, mm. and didn't really seem to communicate well with each other. No. And you have the problem as well, the Bohemians themselves. With the defenestration of Prague, yeah, they that, really pushed themselves away from yeah, from and that dramatically being able to talk exactly. Yeah, they pretty much cut short the discussions for uh, their guarantees of the letter of Majesty. They were scared, they were scared witless of Ferdinand, and mm. they did not expect him after his um, performance in Styria, in which he pers- he basically just persecuted all the Protestants there. They didn't expect him to be able to govern their area fairly. You can understand where they're coming from, but at the just same like, time, yeah, just like everyone else in this uh, story, they act far too on on the wrong side. Like yeah. you, you can act in a certain way without upsetting everyone. And yeah, if they just uh, acted with more of their Christian values that they seem to be so proclaiming, yeah, <laughs> uh, be you know patient and kind mm. and loving to one another, they would have. Instead of throwing him out a window, might have, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly, might have yeah. been a bit more understanding. So let's look at the people around this whole situation. Yeah, give me some extra characters. Okay, so <laughs> we have John George of Saxony, who is very important in the Empire because he owns what's basically the most powerful Protestant state in the Holy Roman Empire. also the middle. Yes, he's also the middle. His the middle is like, people have to go through him to get mm-hmm. to the other side. Yeah. That's just... His state is unified, it's powerful, it's it's wealthy. Now, he himself has a lot of debts, and the Catholic um, League and Maximilian of Bavaria in particular recognize this, and part of the deal in the end that eventually flips... I'm not, I'm, I'd say flips, but John George wasn't really like, oh, let's get rid of the Habsburgs. He was more like, okay, guys, let's not fight because no one's going to get anything from this. Yeah, because it's kind of a civil war, but it's not really... Yeah, John George gets persuaded anyway to side against, squarely against Frederick um, by promises of money and land, in particular Lusatia, which was one of the four uh, members of the defensive alliance that Bohemia had instigated when it did the defenestration. So by promising John George of Saxony that land, John George of Saxony... Well, his credibility is certainly shot anyway in the eyes of Frederick, at least. But mm. he's also come down, comes down very heavily on the side against Frederick, and yeah. that incenses Frederick. So the two of them, yeah, it's it's quite unfair on on Frederick to, yeah. to have his allies pull away like that. But Frederick really doesn't have anything in terms of the ability to offer. No, like, what can he do? Offer exactly. his own. He can ap- he can't really offer anything. That's all yeah. he can do is really appeal to yeah. um, and their family ties. But Palatine just isn't a state that you can offer anything from. No, like, you can really. have that little bit of the corner of my state <laughs> that lies in your land already. Yeah, except you give that away and you've given what. Mm. Um, an eighth of your entire country like that's <laughs> yeah, huge it w- it's, it's just so. not an easy thing to organise Frederick didn't have anything to offer he couldn't offer to pay Saxony's debts or anything he like that he couldn't offer to defend them with an army no because no, he just... didn't have one he was he like he defended so he depended so heavily on his own allies that when they abandoned him he was just left desperate it's really you know I, I can't imagine someone going to war without an army I know, I, I, and but like the reasons you've given for him being the right man makes sense, mm-hmm. but they weren't reliable. Reasons. No, no, so. they weren't. But the Bohemians were expecting as well, even though they weren't going to give him everything they wanted. They're like kind of 
small army, which was mainly composed of rabble, was also backed up by, initially, forces supplied by Frederick of the Palatine, right. and a few forces from Savoy as well. And then you had Ernst of Mansfield, who becomes very important later on, yeah. as the mercenary general basically controlling all these armies. Like he a brought he brought a few... five-star general. Yeah, around, he yeah. brought a, a few units as well from his campaigns, so... You had, you did have some experienced troops, and that explains the early successes of the Bohemians. Uh, but eventually, the numbers become too much. Exactly, and when the the allies don't start marching to to help them, no. the numbers just become overwhelming. Yeah, I, just as it's almost a simultaneous thing, like just as Frederick's allies are abandoning him, more and more people are turning against the Protestant cause and now, joining the Catholics. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you had John George of Saxony there who throws his lot in with the Habsburgs because of the promises of Lusadia and yeah. promises of money as well. And then, of course, you have the most important one, although far easier to persuade because of his own ideological preferences towards the Habsburgs, mm. was Maximilian of Bavaria, who was promised a number of things. This secret deal, which was eventually exposed by Ernst of Mansfield because his forces captured the documents, the conversation really? between them, wow. yeah. Okay. But because you see, the thing was though, the, even though they captured this conversation and they made it public, it took a very long time for the courts of Europe to actually believe that this was going to happen. I'm referring to, by the way, the agreement between Maximilian and Ferdinand that Ferdinand said that if if Maximilian helps me and raises an army, I will give Maximilian Frederick V's Palatine and his electoral title. Like, such such an agreement seemed just so outrageous to the courts of Europe that they didn't possibly believe that that was going to happen. Yeah. And that's why they p- kept on believing that peace was possible. But no matter how much either side wanted peace, Fre- Ferdinand must have known that he couldn't have given anyone peace because as long as Frederick and himself were at war, no, Europe couldn't rest. And they had to be at war because he promised Maximilian Frederick's lands. And he yeah. couldn't go back on that promise. Yeah. So we have Maximilian of Bavaria and we have John George of Saxony both throwing their lot in. Now we come to James I of England, who was also James VI of Scotland. And his son-in-law, Frederick V, and the correspondence between the two of them, it's quite tragic in a way, really, because... Frederick grows more and more desperate as 1620 gives way to mm. 1621 and yes. he becomes uh, an exile in the Hague and his Bohemian kingdom is taken over and his Palatine land look to be next and James I is torn between helping his son-in-law making sure he doesn't become an exile and also maintaining peace or yes, at least a hope for peace yeah maintaining peace but also scolding him for taking the yeah. crown in the first place the problem with James I was he believed that he believed number one the crisis was all of Frederick's making because he had told him not to take the crown in the first place mm. and he believed number two that the best way to um, advance English interests was to make sure that there was peace on the continent and to do that he arranged two marriages now the first one he arranged between his daughter Elizabeth and Frederick V of Palatine. That was seen as the Protestant marriage. Now, the Catholic counterweight to that marriage was one between uh, England and Spain, which is organised between, like, 1615 and 1623 and is brought up and then dropped as the years go by, depending on the moods of the courts and who the foreign minister is. In the In the beginning of the 1620s, then, the idea of the Spanish marriage is revived. And that's kind of how how James I is kept on side. It's very important at this time to remember as well the influence of individual foreign ministers. Mm. There was this one guy, Gondomar, in um, 
in James the First's court, and he was said to have James the First under his thumb because he kept promising that the Spanish match could go ahead. Now you may be wondering to yourself, well, why does James want this Spanish marriage in the first place? Especially at the time, is huge. Exactly. And yeah, like it's easy to forget. And for a long time, I I had assumed that was the case. Was after the Armada, Spain was shot and Spain was done. But no, that's not the case at all. Spain is the supreme world power at this stage. Still. Still, yeah. And James recognises this, and he thinks if he can cooperate Protestant elements of Europe and the Catholic elements of Europe together, and bring these two sides together, it'll be not only revolutionary, but also guarantee peace, even along English terms, because England will have fingers in both pies. And another important thing to remember as well, James I is... A pioneer, really, in ideas of of British uh, ideas of unity, because he really believes that England and Scotland can join together and become this united kingdom and broker peace throughout the continent. Now mm. he's pretty much alone in this view. It won't be for yeah. another hundred years that this comes about. But so I mentioned John George of Saxony and Maximilian of Bavaria, those two allies of Ferdinand. Then we have James the First, who is a reluctant. Um, I'd say, I was going to say reluctant family member, which isn't really possible, (laughs) but I'm sure he wishes at this stage that he hadn't involved himself in Palatine affairs so that he could extricate himself from the affairs of the continent because at this stage I'd say his writing hand was getting very tired because by the end of 1623 the letters between Frederick and James I were just ridiculous and they always say the same thing. It's always Frederick asking... Please come and help me. Exactly, yeah. Like, no, you're an idiot, you brought this upon yourself. Don't bring this upon me. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) And then you have appeals from Elizabeth, his daughter, saying, why aren't you helping my husband? You set up this marriage, we have like five children. Seriously, they had so many children. Yeah, I bet he was like, just come home. It's not even a country. Yeah, so you have all... (laughs) You had all that. Would you all- when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
also had the other characters too. So Philip III was the king of Spain at this stage, and he would be the king of Spain until 1621. And he's another Habsburg. He is another Habsburg as well, and his his rule, which lasted from when Philip II, his father, died in 1598 till 1621. Um, his rule was quite quite good for Spain, but also quite bad for Spain. Now, it was good because Spain certainly expanded on what it had, yeah. but those really badly needed reforms in essentially every area of Spain were still put off. And that started to cause suffering. It yeah. started to cause suffering. Problems that were already apparent were only exasperated, and the really bad economic reforms that were necessary were postponed in favor of war in favor of war and in mm. favor of taxes because Spain was involved in so many things it, it explains why the 12 years truce between Spain and the Dutch happened in 1609 yeah. both sides needed peace so badly that Spain extricating itself from the war with the Dutch was seen as the only option mm. now it wasn't a popular peace at all because the Dutch were seen as rebellious in Spain and they weren't looked on as people capable of ruling themselves even though they'd pretty much taken Spain to the limit for the past 40 years (laughs) and they had really caused no end of problems for Spain and every time Spain had an enemy the Dutch were involved in some way I think they must be the most tenacious rebellious state in the history (laughs) of rebellious states because they had managed to get themselves involved in absolutely everything but anyway, so Philip III sees, basically he ensures that the Spanish Habsburgs are going to get involved in the Holy Roman Empire and the Thirty Years' War. So that's why he's important. Now his son... Yeah, at the time, it wasn't titled the Thirty Years' War, so he no. had no idea what he was <laughs> yeah, well, that's, to get involved Yeah, with, that so. is important. That is important to remember. Like, we can make these kind of judgments, but they didn't expect the war to... Well, there's many prophetic... Um, announcements by people during this time who were quoted in the histories as saying oh if someone does this if they take bohemia there will be a general war for 30 years at least and stuff like that so people saw a general war coming but i'm sure philip iii by making sure that his um making sure that his cousins in austria and across the empire didn't fall i didn't i'm sure he wasn't expecting to invest himself in a war that would last 30 years and remember for Spain the war didn't end in 1648 with the Peace of Westphalia the war dragged on for another 11 years after that it wasn't until 1659 that the war between France and Spain ended and by that stage the balance of power in Europe had dramatically changed and France was the preeminent power in Europe and everyone knew it you even see at the end of I, I'm really looking this is why I'm really looking forward to covering the rest of the 30 years war yeah. because by the end of the 30 years war you start to see the Dutch Realizing what's going on because the French are occupying all the Spanish Netherlands and the Dutch are like, we do not want this powerful French yeah. empire right on our doorstep, so we'd much rather have the weak Spanish there instead. <laughs> so in the peace negotiations, it's negotiated primarily by the Dutch to return the status quo of the Spanish Netherlands back to the Spanish, which might seem odd because they're acting yeah, essentially but, against their ally. Yeah. But there you go, that's why they do it. But I, I mean, it makes sense because then you have your Belgian buffer. Yes, exactly. Which is you do the sole purpose of Belgium, and it does not. <laughs> yeah, and it does not take very long for France and the Dutch to go to war after the Thirty Years' War. Mm. So the Dutch did see it coming, yeah. as did England as well. Yeah, well, I mean, the Dutch is just a profitable area. Yeah, but we we have Philip the Third, and then his son Philip the Fourth. Now Philip the Fourth carries on where his father left off, essentially, um, even though he realized 
Like, his father died just as the Twelve Years' Truce ended. So just as the war with the Dutch was resuming, Philip IV took over as King of Spain. Yeah. Now, he would have certainly been in two minds about it. Yeah. But he would have also recognised at the same time the truce was just so desperately unpopular in Spain. And not only that, but you have to remember, Spain also controlled Portugal at this stage. Mm. And the Portuguese council were really upset with the Dutch because even though it was supposed to be peace with the Dutch at this stage, the Dutch were still... Um, interfering in Portuguese and Spanish affairs abroad. Yeah, just acting, acting they were, out of order. Yeah, they were they were taking away their markets and they were still acting quite piratically as well. They were attacking their shipping and stuff because the truce applied to Europe. Europe. It didn't apply to the Americas and the Indies and everything where all the spices and the profitable stuff was coming from. So the Portuguese were getting absolutely annihilated abroad on that sea and their former empire was disintegrating and being captured piecemeal by the Dutch, which they did not like at all. But then again, it probably goes to show the Dutch tenacity at, at getting the trade out of people, mm. but not really going in for the conquer, not really no. conquesting or setting up... Uh, I suppose they had the foresight to realise that if by two or three generations after settling this area, mm. these people are going to probably want to pull away from us anyway. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's interesting to look at what the two sides gained from the Twelve Years' Truce as well. What I learned from it was essentially the Dutch did very badly at home where they were expected to do very well at home and they did very well abroad and the Spanish were the exact opposite. Mm. The Spanish did quite well in making their influence felt throughout Europe during the 12 years truce because they didn't have to fight the Dutch anymore on the continent whereas abroad they really suffered and so did their Portuguese Mm -hmm. ally well that's because the uh, Dutch could just invest in ships of course the ships would go out raid the Spanish Mm -hmm. and they could invest in more ships yeah and And the East India Company and the West India Company was really taking over from the monopoly that the Portuguese had enjoyed and this really did upset the Portuguese and it, it was a major factor in influencing Philip III to end basically the 12 years truce and start the war up and the decisions that that he made were really influenced by major politicians in the various courts of europe who recognized that if we start to attack the dutch at home on the continent really fully and with really terrific force with intent yeah then they'll have to divert all their resources to home defense and they won't be as dangerous abroad and this definitely does work for the first five or six years the dutch are in a desperate position which we'll, which we'll really see happening in the next episode. We've already examined it a bit already, but in more detail. Now, this all turns around, of course, um, with the intervention of an important other state and another very rich trading nation, Denmark, but we'll cover that in more detail mm. in the next episode. So that's the situation at this stage. That's Philip III and Philip IV. Now, Sigismund of Poland is another uh, yeah, a Habsburg fiercely, ally. a fiercely Catholic state, Poland. Yes, so... but you see, the thing about Sigismund is... Um, Sigismund III of Poland he was by rights the king of Sweden as well really? yes okay. now this is really this is really interesting stuff it just goes to show how closely tied everyone is together the way it happened was Sigismund's father was the king of Sweden and the king of Poland and now this this was all grand and then obviously it's a lot of resources to have together and this was when Poland was at its strongest, essentially, as well. Yeah. Now, when his son was born, his son assumed the reins of the two states as well. But it didn't last for very long, because Sweden was essentially Protestant, and Poland was essentially Catholic. And they were both very, like, very much, yeah. one is entirely Catholic and exactly. one is entirely yeah. Protestant. And they feared the they feared the kind of influence of either religious 
denomination yeah. on their affairs. So, like, the, it, if you were a Protestant king, you'd have an opposition, and if you were a Catholic king, mm-hmm. you'd have an opposition. Yeah. So. Sigismund III, while he was in Poland, ruling Poland and Sweden from Poland, because he was Catholic, his yeah, <laughs> his uncle Charles then usurped his authority in Sweden and attacked him when he came home to Sweden to try and um, impress his power. And Sigismund was essentially kicked out of Sweden and his uncle took over the reins of the government. Which is crazy if you think about it. And then Sigismund's son, Gustavus Adolphus, who will soon become very important, then takes over as Sweden's king once Charles Charles X, I think it is, dies. So Very interesting. Isn't it very interesting? But this essentially solidifies the hatred between the two countries because you have Gustavus Adolphus, who is Protestant and in charge of Sweden, and then you have his cousin, Sigismund III, who is Catholic and in charge of Poland and wants to be in charge of Sweden because it is his right. And a lot of the dispatches, indeed anyone who talks to Sigismund, who is his friend, also calls him the King of Sweden when yeah. they're calling him the King of Poland. Uh-huh. So He'd it, have to or he'd be a little bit pissed off. Yeah, <laughs> of hey, course. what about my, my King of Sweden? What yeah. happened to that? What happened to that? Yeah. <laughs> no, Don't but, forget I own that. Yeah, so that just gives you an idea, like... So Gustavus Adolphus was essentially seen as a usurper of Sigismund's authority. So that's yeah. why the two of them were at war for so long. But you really see the turning of the tide starts to happen in in sixteen in the sixteen twenties, and in sixteen twenty eight is a well. It'll become clear in the next episode. Sixteen twenty eight is a really important year of the Thirty Years' War. First of all, you have what's what's called La Rochelle, the Huguenot stronghold in France falls. And that means that France is able to pursue a coherent foreign policy, which basically means they pursue it against the Spanish. Another thing that happens is that the Dutch capture the Spanish treasure fleet worth three million pounds in the Americas. So they're able to use that money then. So, yeah, that's pretty cool and interesting. But the final interesting thing that happens is the French broker a peace. The French and the Dutch, they broker a peace between the Swedes and the Poles. That's very intriguing. Yeah. So when that happens is you see this the the French and the and the Dutch they recognize the importance of Sweden and mm. its its manpower reserves and its experience in wars and everything mm. else they recognize it could be an important ally. Yeah. Absolutely. So by freeing up the Swedes for for a war now against uh, in favor of the Protestant cause now they're really making very big strides in the in in the direction of a general world conflict by doing this of course we mean world european war well yeah but essentially at this stage if it happens in europe it happens across the world because of the empires that are there yeah but it's still only colonies uh fighting colonies it's not the masses of armies marching across no of course not but anyway my original point was though sigismund the third was um trying to get his country back by fighting Sweden for so long he drained the resources of his country to the to the point that when 1628 came around and when Poland was no longer a, a big player on well the, not necessarily I mean, not a big player yeah, but, but it it was definitely very depressed and Sigismund yes yeah. Sigismund was very ready for peace at this stage mm-hmm. he was very very ready he was also very wary of the Ottomans who were encroaching upon his territory and the Ottomans would have been an Arabic state Yes, they were. Well, they were based out of they are based out of Turkey and stuff. So, okay. but they were very distracted during the opening stages of the Thirty Years' War because of affairs in Persia. They had their own dynastic problems as well, so they couldn't get involved in the Habsburg lands like yeah. in Hungary as they had done so many times before. Yeah. So yeah, so it's all connected, really. Very interesting, and we'll it's see it really. We'll see it come together, really, as as this goes on. 
Well, I talked I talked briefly there about France, okay, and France's uh, vacillating foreign policy, which is mainly due to its problems at home. France had, just like every other European country, they had a religious minority of some kind or another. In this case, they were called the Huguenots, and they were basically French Protestants. But you see, for a while, the French Protestants have been gaining major ground. And if you remember back to a while, we had this guy called Henry of Navarre, who would eventually become Henry IV uh, of France and become France's king. And you also had the really hilarious War of the Three Henrys, which I thought was the best name for a war ever, <laughs> um, between Henry of Henry de, Gu- Henry de Guise, who was leader of the French Catholic League. It gets a bit confusing because there's so many Catholic Leagues. So you had Henry de Guise, who was leader of the French Catholic League. You had Henry III, who was the king of France. And you had Henry of Navarre, who was king of Navarre, who would become... Jeez. Yeah, I know. They, but they it's, really loved Henry. They, they really did, yeah. And and it just goes to show, like, like everyone, everyone's being called Henry. I think the Spanish are the only ones who didn't call anyone Henry. Anyway... So the French were essentially paralyzed domestically because they had this religious block of the Huguenots. Now, the Huguenots were really bolstered by Henry of Navarre because Henry of Navarre was a Protestant, but he converted to Catholicism in 1600 so that the wars that had been fought, not just in his name, but also across France that had completely ruined France and made it not able to pursue a coherent policy of any kind, he made sure that they ended in that finally a new kind of monarchy could take over the Bourbon monarchy which was where we get all the Louise and everything else from okay. um, but yeah so at this stage then you have his son Yeah. you have Henry IV's son Henry IV is assassinated in 1610 his son Louis XIII takes over then um, and Louis XIII's son is Louis XIV who everyone knows very well he won't become he won't, he won't really emerge onto the scene for a little while longer at the moment, we still have Louis the Thirteenth, and Louis the Thirteenth is, at the start, it becomes a bit, it becomes a bit difficult to ascertain what his angle is because, even though he's a Catholic, and he doesn't want the Huguenots at home to obviously gain any more influence or power, yeah, um, he also recognizes that to let the Habsburgs have their way in Europe without any kind of French counterweight to their actions mm. is a very bad thing, of course, yeah, because just like everyone else, the French are concerned with the balance of power. It's not just the English. Yeah. So they want to make sure that there's an answer there for what what the Habsburgs are doing. But the problem with this is, you see, just like you have the Huguenots in France who are the Protestants, you have what are called the French devotes, which are, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but they are essentially the Catholic hardliners. And they oppose any action at all against anyone Catholic. Like, what, what they believe is that if you are Catholic, you are our ally. This France. means that France is essentially... A very, very moldable ally. Yeah, but it's also destabilized. It's not entirely reliable. No, it's not at all. And and just like just like Louis is supposed to be in favor of the angle of the Devots, he's also mindful of the fact that he can't just sit idly by and allow the Habsburgs to win. And it shows why they side with the Dutch in the end. Yes, they do side with the Dutch in the end, and that mainly happens because of a very important minister in France called Cardinal Richelieu, who is really important in separating foreign policy and religious policy. He basically right. says, okay, the Protestants are religiously different to us, but in terms of the balance of power, we need their help, and they need our help, so we're going to team up. Now, this wasn't very popular, but in order to 
really advance France's cause, Louis XIII recognizes this just in yeah. time. And he gets rid of the influence of the the Devots, and he at the same time, simultaneously, the as I mentioned, La Rochelle, which is the fortress of the Huguenots, is surrounded and it surrenders, thus ending the threat posed by the Huguenots. And in the process of doing that, it makes the Devots really, seem it, less powerful. And it, it stabilizes the entire country. Yes, so it does. It's, it's, yeah. That but, was a that was a bit of good French foresight right there. Yeah, well, it's 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 hard to kind of understand what's going on with everyone and why the French don't intervene. But you just have to look at how conflicted everyone is. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same story in every other country. With do we act in the name of our religion or do we act in the name of our common interest? Mm. Now, this is the emergence of what's called real politique, which is basically instead of looking at um, religious or um, family ties or anything we just look at our common interests like the balance of power what what are we trying to gain from this situation mm-hmm. like what are economics and exactly yeah like from, it's yeah. this this is one of the key things now we'll talk about this later but this is one of the key things that emerges from the 30 years war the end of religion and state and foreign policy all being tied together at once the separation of religion and state is one of the key things that comes yeah. about. And, and it's, it leads to modern Europe. That's it does, yes, it really does. But it also, at the same time, it leads to a realisation of what Charles V, if you remember all the way back 100 years ago, yeah. um, it's what he believed was going to happen when he assumed the thrones of Spain and the Holy Roman Empire. He believed that he could unite Europe under Christian values and take on the Ottoman Empire. Now, because of various reasons, mainly France and French interference, this doesn't happen. But over a hundred years later, culminating in the war against the Ottoman Empire at the end of the 17th century, which I look forward to covering very much, is basically a manifestation of everything Charles V wanted because finally the European powers unite after learning from the Thirty Years' War and how bad religious conflict Mm. within themselves was, they unite against the common Ottoman foe with the result that at the dawn of the 18th century, the Ottoman Empire is knocked off its perch. It's no longer the dominant power in Europe, the Mediterranean, that it yeah. was. And Europe, Western Europe, is able to take over. It's very interesting because uh, the Ottomans, you don't really hear much about them. But no. they, they are, they were out there making trade routes. And... Mm. Now, I did mention that the Ottomans at this stage, the only reason we don't hear about the Ottomans invading Hungary for the bazillionth time is because they're so caught up with their own problems mainly fighting Persia oh, seriously time. though it's ridiculous all the wars that happen are basically like okay he's not looking let's invade Hungary or, <laughs> or, or the or the Habsburgs are like okay the Ottomans aren't looking we'll take back parts of Hungary and they're always fighting over parts of Hungary and every Poor now and Hungary. again yeah I know and every now and again you get a surge from one side or the other and they take back some land and then and then, of course, a counter surge has to be launched yeah. and stuff. Now that th- those kind of events closed the uh, 16th century, but yeah. Islam as a religion seems to be a lot more unified and a lot stronger in terms of its ability to maintain some sort of uh, internal stability. Yeah, and until Christianity finds that stability, then in early modern Europe, it's not able to effectively combat the Ottoman influence and power. Mm. It's only able to do that at the end of the 17th century. Once the ruinous experience of the Thirty Years' War, which I'll cover in future detail, convinces European powers that in order to exist together, we need to remove the idea that just because you're a different religious 
disposition to us, you're automatically our enemy. Hmm. That's one of the key things that's learned hmm. from the Thirty Years' War. And then after that, the reasons for going to war were more to do with power. Power. Yes, yeah. very much so. Yeah, but that's that's a key thing. Like that's why you can separate this era from the other era of Europe. And hmm. the Thirty Years' War is basically that. The last pin real in point. It. Yeah. yeah, that that is the crossroads from Europe at this point to Europe at that point. Okay. Very well said. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's interesting just as a comparison to... Mm-hmm. Because 300 years ago, Europe as we know it had just finished being a, a religious country, a, mm-hmm. a religious monopoly where mm-hmm. it was religion and states together. But now, 300 years later, the, it's the Arab states that are, that are effectively destroying each other yeah that's that's moment. I suppose true yeah it's an interesting now the fact that we in Europe were lucky enough to do it 300 years ago when we didn't have automatic weapons <laughs> yeah there wasn't and bombs a, and yeah, everything and there else wasn't yeah a massive neighboring nation that would mm. supply everyone with weapons and guns to kill each other mm-hmm. but it's it's just an interesting comparison how uh, in in the Arabic world you still have that state and religion very yes, closely tied Yes, that is together. interesting as well, yeah. And I'm wondering if at the end of this Arab Spring, will they come to the same realisation and really start acting and behaving yeah. as, as a unified yeah. uh, group of people that aren't so divided? Exactly, very good point. But the mm. question I propose to that is, is the conflict that's going on now bad enough to persuade them, like the Thirty Years' War persuaded mm. the Christians, that unification or at least toleration had to be the new order mm, of the day. That's that's it. That's um, the key thing. I, I'd like to cover a few a few ideas now. Um mainly the fact that the Habsburg um victory in sixteen twenty four was essentially complete. And then this sets the scene then for the next few episodes when the tide starts to turn against the Habsburgs. Mm. So as an example of what I'm talking about, in sixteen twenty four, just a few months after the Battle of Statlon, which was when Frederick's forces um, well, the forces that represented Frederick and the Protestant cause, essentially, they lost the Battle of Statlong in August 1623. And after that, then, Frederick recognized that he could not take back the Palatine. It was just impossible to take it back. Mm. So he, he decided to agree to terms for a peace. Now, that doesn't mean, this didn't mean he was saying, OK, I give up my claims to the Bohemian crown and I'm allowing Maximilian to take over my Palatine. All it meant was that, for the moment... Um, Frederick was acknowledging the fact that he was not able to take back his lands. So that's hugely important as well. But as I explained, there was... So he just stays in the Hague. He does. It? He stays in the Hague for an extended period of time and until... He has no one paying him tax, so I presume the uh, English crown is footing his pill of well, staying there. Well, actually, you'd be surprised that the Dutch are paying the bills. They're actually providing... Uh, Frederick oh, with a, a, with a quite... Refuge, yeah, yeah, they're providing him with a safe refuge. Interestingly, Frederick arrives in the Hague on just a few days before the or a few days after the 12 years truce expires so just as Frederick is arriving in the Hague the Spanish and the Dutch are going back to war with each I, other I suppose the, the Dutch are, they have a legitimate king at that point do they? Uh, well not necessarily a king now you'd say he still... was the stadtholder which basically okay. meant he was the dictator the whole mess that had happened in the Dutch Republic while the 12 years truce was going on I covered it I think two episodes ago but it was basically religious conflict that completely ruined the chances that the Dutch had of establishing what was expected to be like a Calvinist international the Dutch Republic was the most populous most rich one of the uh, strongest states in Europe, despite the fact that it was a breakaway rebel state from the mm. Spanish Empire. Yeah. So the fact that it was also 
the predominant Calvinist state, it was expected to represent Calvinism on an even greater level than before because it was now at peace with the Spanish. Now, in some ways, this did happen because... And this, this makes sense why they take on Frederick because, yeah. one, he's a king, two, yeah. he's a Calvinist. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, as, as a potential, you know, if you need some sort of royal yeah. stamp, keep them in reserve just in case they Sure, and, and just like everyone else, did not necessarily want um, the Habsburgs to be successful in Europe and take over everything. Yeah. The no. Dutch didn't want that either, of course, because yeah, the Spanish were Habsburgs and they expected to be at war with them in the near future. But unlike everyone else, the Dutch put their money where their mouth was because they had a genuine need to have another ally. Now, that ally didn't pan out because Frederick's forces were all defeated. But in particular, one of my sources, David Maland, which I keep referring to simply because I find it so fascinating, he posed the idea, and in fact, this is what he believed happened, was that when the Dutch were intervening in Europe and providing safe passage for Frederick, not only were the Dutch scolding James I of England for not giving more support to Frederick, but they were also telling the Catholic League that, Catholic League, if you intervene against Frederick, we will invade your lands. <laughs> so they were like th- throwing threats out there because they were so afraid of the Spanish position being mm. more strong at the end of the Twelve Years' Truce than it had been at the start. Right. But no matter what the Dutch try to do, they cannot stop the Spanish invading and taking over the Palatine and then establishing such a strong position, which is one of the reasons why the Dutch are so stretched and so at a disadvantage when the war resumes, Mm. because the Spanish have brought all their resources up basically to the Dutch doorstep and are then able to intervene with real force once the war resumes. Yeah. Like you point anywhere on the map in mm. Europe, and there is just so much history going on, yeah. and all of it simultaneously. Like mm. in any other time period during you know history, mm. wars would simply be one on one. Or yeah, two on I two, know. Yeah, and and it would be simpler. Like even uh, the Napoleon Wars, it mm. was a clear cut. Well, I say clear cut, but it was fairly clear. Which Clearer side, than this, anyway. Yeah, yeah which, I know which sides people were on. Of course. Uh, but this is just, you know... I know what you mean. All over the place. That's why it's so hard to cover it properly. And that's why, in the last episode I did, I kept I tried to keep it, like, shorter than before. It was an hour and five minutes, I think. Hmm. But it certainly felt like it was less content-heavy than the other ones because the next episode to come, I have to cover so much simultaneously. Yeah. And I'll even have to backtrack a little bit to explain what people were doing. Such as, for example, Ferdinand II crushing the crushing completely the rebellion in Bohemia. Now, in the Battle of White Mountain, which Frederick loses and which basically ensures that he's going to lose the Bohemian lands, that essentially leads to the end of the Bohemian Rebellion. But Ferdinand is not finished yet. He doesn't simply allow the defeat of the Bohemians to occur and then goes, OK, Bohemians, that's, that's good, I'll talk to you later. Ferdinand allows the Catholic League to take over Bohemia, essentially, and Ferdinand begins his process of re-Catholicizing the area. I think one of my sources, I think it was G. Pages, described it as <laughs> the Habsburgs impregnated Bohemia with Catholicism, which I thought was a really funny way to describe yeah. it as. But, but it, it makes sense. It yes. Was, it, they were raping the Bohemian culture into having a, a Catholic outlook on yeah, it. Yeah, now, it's historically, it's historically disputed how like nationalistic the Bohemian revolt was, but certainly the main standing 
result of the Bohemian loss here was that Catholicism was brought into the region with real, real force. Because before this, it was religiously diverse, and that was okay. I mean, you did have a bit of extremism in the in the Calvinism, which is probably why we had the defenestration in the first place. Although yeah. that, that in itself is debatable, because you could blame either side or the other. It It, it is important to remember just how how important the character of Ferdinand was at this stage because without him and without his religious considerations and everything else without that I don't think the Thirty Years War itself would have taken the shape that it did because the problem was it was very much a religious twist in it that made it so scary there there was a religious sting in the tail because even though the Bohemian Revolt had been defeated Ferdinand wasn't finished yet he was he was convinced that his mission was to extrapolate Protestantism from Bohemia itself and to rid not just Bohemia, but soon the idea became that the entire empire had to get... But that's fair. That's fair that that they had to get rid of Protestantism when at the time, state affairs and religious affairs were paired together. Yeah, but that's the thing, though. Did they have to be that way? Mm. Was it the case that Ferdinand, by doing... Like, by acting against Protestantism like he was... Was he forcing the Protestants' hand? That's it, yeah. If he hadn't acted in this way, would the Danes eventually in 1625 enter the war? Would the Swedes in 1630 enter the war? And would the French have entered in 1635 had they felt that Ferdinand was going to be satisfied with what he gained by defeating the Bohemians and not insist on taking everyone else's land in the process? The whole reason why in 1622 the Lower Saxon Circle, which was basically the... Yeah. area just below Denmark which was also partly controlled by Denmark the whole reason they just they elected to raise troops at that stage was for defensive reasons but because they feared that the Catholic League and the Catholic forces were gaining too much ground and were encroaching basically on their influence and it was very much near their borders nobody trusted anyone to keep conflict away from everyone else yeah and the problem was this this should have been seen as a warning ferdinand should have seen the fact that people in his own lands did not trust the forces that were supposed to be under his control because they were religiously different he should have seen okay i'm worrying these people i should calm down and relax a bit and give them assurances but instead he upped the ante a bit more yeah, and, and he kept that pressure he up. kept the pressure up mm. and not only that but he increased it religiously as well I mean he only gets more and more daring as the victories start to pile up because he kept winning he felt like he was doing the right thing well that's thing, the thing God yeah providing for him because mm. it was like would you sit down and pray and actually see if killing all these people is right because yeah. it, just, it just doesn't seem to add up mm. He was he was essentially trying to monopolize the religious makeup of the empire mm. because, as you said, the circumstances of the time may have convinced him to believe that the only way the empire could have existed was if it was religiously uniform, mm. like was if mm. if it was the same. But it didn't necessarily have to be that way. It def- it depended on who was who was in control. Like Matthias and Rudolf before him had been able to. I mean, sure, they had to give out concessions, but that was mainly because they were at war with the Ottoman Empire and they had no choice. Ferdinand at this stage, after defeating the rebellion, he could have said, okay, let's take a step back here, let's organise a conference. And now, it may not necessarily have worked, and Frederick may have been difficult to get on side, but if you were able I mean, to... Yeah, even just give him back one of his little patches of... <laughs> give him something, and and make it so that when Maximilian gets the Palatine, when Maximilian gets the Electorate, etc., that Maximilian understands, okay, this is only for a little while, we're going to teach Frederick a lesson, but... 
he's going to come back and everything's going to go back to normal. I'm not going to try and take over the Empire with this crazy idea that will only alienate everyone and prolong the war. They often give out, historians often debate that Frederick is the one that prolonged the war because from his exile in the Hague he tried to organise this orchestra of anti-Habsburg opinion and alliances. Yeah. Like, as they say, there's no smoke without a fire and the fire was the thing that Ferdinand had continued to flame. Yeah, that's it. He could have put it out. He could have made it so that the Danes didn't intervene. The Danes intervene in 1625 because Christian IV is so, you could say paranoid, arguably, but he was just terrified that the next step was going to be the religious uniformity of the lands under his control. It's easy for us to judge the decisions that everyone made, even for Ferdinand. I find it hard to sympathise with Ferdinand at times because his choices seem so out there, as do Frederick's, but maybe because Frederick is always on the losing side, you're able to sympathise with yeah, him easier. that's it. Um, Ferdinand's choices, though, always seem to prolong the war. Yeah. But at, at the same time, like, I'm I'm going to advance... My next, my next episode is going to essentially jump off from the Habsburg victories that are so total in 1624. But I want to pose this question. Now, I did an essay. One of my assignments was, was Ferdinand II a victim of his own success? And by that I mean... The more, the more successes that Ferdinand enjoyed, the more he started to demand of his subjects that he was victorious over. Now, this is seen in, in not just the fact that people started to go to war with him, the more, the more successes he enjoyed, but also the religious policies he inflicted on the people he came to rule over that really did turn public opinion against and, and him. we can see that repeated even in Ireland, just the way uh, the rulership of trying to unify a country to one religion yeah. doesn't work out as, no. as expected. Yeah. It just generates a lot of hardship. Definitely, yeah, of course. Um, force And if, if it can't be forced upon an island the size of Ireland with the population that it had, how on earth did Ferdinand expect to so, yeah. inflict it upon the Holy Roman Empire? The whole of Europe. Yeah, which essentially stretched from the top to the bottom of Europe like it's a crazy thing to propose mm. but such were the ideas of the time that yeah. it maybe it didn't seem that crazy and the more that Fre- the more that Ferdinand won the more he became convinced that this was not just possible but his mission yeah and even, his goal even uh, his divine purpose, yeah his divine his, calling yeah his divine calling which is ridiculous but still it's it's still what he could have thought and maybe in in a way it was necessary for Europe to, to go through all this hardship yeah uh, to get to the point where it is now yeah and and we're experiencing this phenomenon of peace in Europe so uh, I would just want to conclude this episode then on the idea that Ferdinand II was a victim of his own success and I will come to prove that in the next few episodes because the more he's successful first of all the more enemies go against him but the more he starts to believe that success will always come to him and because of this he has to implement what he feels is his divine calling. Now certainly he's influenced by his Jesuit advisors who he holds very closely and who are often criticised by historians as the main reason. They're they're like the private puppet masters of Europe because they're basically influencing Ferdinand's decisions at all times. But essentially what this comes down to is... The Thirty Years' War evolving from what began as a defenestration of Prague and a bohemian affair in in between Frederick of the Palatine and Ferdinand II as the Holy Roman Emperor, it evolved into the, probably the most catastrophic war that would not be topped in terms of savagery and brutality and lives lost for another 300 
plus years. Okay, so that is the end of the first talk episode of the 30 Years War special that we're yeah, going we're to do. we're going to do a second after the next, what, four or five episodes? Yeah, the next time we'll be, the next time we'll, you'll hear me and Sean talking together, the next time you hear Sean and I talking together is after everything has happened and after the Peace of Westphalia is in place, and then we'll have even more special anecdotes for you and even more uh, judgments on who's to blame and why. <laughs> so uh, keep an eye out for us, keep listening, and... Uh... Thanks very much for listening. Thanks. Thanks. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.